I tend to write books as narratives, but within the narrative, there are embedded certain ideas. One could even call them arguments, but I don't take an argumentative tone. But I believe that Silicon Valley emerged in California and not in the American East because of the gold rush experience. This episode of Beyond Aporia originated in the Howenstein Center's webcast, Lunch and Learn with Gleaves, available at www.gvsu.edu hc. Welcome to the Howenstein Center's new online program, Lunch and Learn. I'm your host, Gleaves Whitney. During the stay-home orders, we may not be able to journey beyond our homes, but that should not stop us from journeying beyond our minds. Today's journey takes us deep into America's wild west. Our guide is H.W. Brands, himself a Westerner who has spent most of his life in Oregon and Texas. He's at the University of Texas now. If you've been coming to Howenstein Center events for a while, you've seen Bill many times regaling us with his storytelling and his provocative insights, and today he's going to talk about his most recently published book, Dreams of El Dorado, A History of the American West. My conversation with Bill will go about 45 minutes or so, followed by questions from our viewers. Feel free to begin sending your questions to us at any time using the Zoom toolbar to do so. Bill, thank you for joining Delighted, me. Cleves. I always appreciate the opportunity to continue the conversation that you and I have been having now for what? 15, 18 years, and I think with probably many of the viewers and listeners today who have been kind enough to come to the event, so it's always a pleasure. Well, you're always a big hit up here in Grand Rapids, and also when we've done programs with you in Florida, so I, I know you're much loved and appreciated, and I, I certainly feel that way having you on now. Well, Bill, you've now written, gosh, a number of books and book chapters about the American West. Um, gosh, the California Gold Rush, the Texas independence movement, presidents who strongly identified with the West, like Theodore Roosevelt and Ronald Reagan, and now this, this magisterial overview of one of our nation's most distinct regions. Let's start with a definition. How do you define the West? When I was approached by an editor at Basic Books to write a history of the American West, this is the question that I put to him first. So what are we going to consider the West? Because any student of American history knows that the West began about 100 meters west of Jamestown in 1607. The West is this moving target in American history. And I didn't want to write the history of the old Southwest. It was, it's a different story. It's, there are similar features. But when people talk about the West today, if you say the West, they're not talking about Kentucky. Kentucky at one time was the West. They're really talking about the stuff that starts maybe at the Mississippi River, maybe at the Missouri River, and certainly goes out to the Pacific Coast. So I decided to focus on the Trans-Mississippi West. And I did so in part because I had to answer a second question. In my history of the West, first, what's the West? And secondly, when does my history start? And for that matter, when does it end? And so by choosing the Trans-Mississippi West, I was able to answer the second question as well. So when does the history start? I essentially start with the Louisiana Purchase of 1803, because that's the first time the United States had any legal claim to territory west of the Mississippi River. 
Before that, I can say it was somebody's West, but it wasn't the American West. That might seem like hair splitting a little bit, but every story's got to start somewhere, and that's a good place to start, in part because I also wanted to tell a story that had a large dramatic narrative element to it, and it allows me to begin with the Lewis and Clark expedition, which is one of the great stories of the American West. Not only that, but it's kind of, it was almost a childhood and founding myth for me and other kids growing up in Oregon, because I grew up about two miles from the Columbia River. And many times I stood on the banks of the Columbia River, imagining that Lewis and Clark were coming down the river in the flotilla of canoes. So Lewis and Clark were these guys that inhabited my childhood, and the opportunity to write about them was something I couldn't pass up. You really talk about the West filling our imagination, and that segues to a question I want to ask you. How and why did the West say this whole area, let's call it from the 100th Meridian West, you know, that line along the Texas Panhandle North, why and how did the West start to define our American nation, our American character? Well, that's one of the appealing parts of the story and one of the things that drew me to try to tell the story because the West was arguably as important to Easterners as it was to Westerners. It inhabited the American imagination in the way no other part of the country did. Now, this is partly because, as I say, except for a narrow strip along the seaboard, every part of the country had been part of the West at one time or another but also because the West was the direction of the American future. And this was a result of the fact that the United States was this expansive political enterprise and this expansive culture, and the place to expand was to the West. The British controlled the North in Canada, in French originally, and the Spanish controlled the South in Mexico and the Caribbean. But in the West, there were, for the most part, originally just Native American tribes, and they had been tragically from their perspective, so decimated by introduced diseases, that their numbers and therefore their capacity to resist militarily was quite small. And so the West seemed to these assertive, even aggressive types, these enterprising types who took the chance to cross the Atlantic to be this open slate on which they could write the future of the United States. And the West is this place where American society and American politics evolved. The West was the birthplace of American democracy. So at a time when Virginia was still wrapped up in that old aristocratic elitist approach to politics where Virginians didn't mind that they looked up to somebody like George Washington or that Thomas Jefferson could inhabit his hilltop mansion. But if you go West, if you go into Kentucky or Tennessee, and even more when you get in the farthest across the, the Mississippi River, there's a much greater sense of equality, there's a much greater sense of democracy. It was the Western states that first adopted the basic principle of democracy, that ordinary people could actually exercise political power. This country was born a republic, but not a democracy. A republic was, is, a, is a system that derives its political legitimacy in some undefined way from the people. It really meant originally you don't have a monarch. But a democracy is a place where ordinary people actually exercise political power. And this is what emerged in the West. But the last thing is that the West was this place where people could go if things got tough in the East. If your business failed, go East. If you're an Andrew Jackson and you're an orphan 
and you want to make your life and your career go west. And he west, went west to Tennessee, but in a later generation, people would go west to Missouri. They would go west to Oregon. They would go west to Texas. They would go west to California. So the west is the part of the country that has always been identified with the American future. But you do such a good job pointing out that there's an irony in that, in this sort of strapping view of people moving west and, and, and a now a real democracy where they can write their own future. Because actually, as you point out, one of the great ironies of the west is that it was the federal government and big corporations like railroads that were the primary agencies in the settlement of the west as contrasted. And I thought this was a really interesting twist on your point is contrasted with the settlement of the East. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah, so um, the thing I like most about history is that it's more complicated than you think. And this is almost regardless of how complicated you think it is, because it's more complicated than that. And it's just full of all sorts of ironies. And one of the great ironies is the myth of American individualism, which Westerners have typically embraced. As I tell my students, you know, there are two principles of organizing people into groups. And one principle is it's every man for himself. And the other is we, we're all in this together. And by the way, we're speaking at a time when we really clearly are all in this together. But in my state, Texas, in your state, there the business of, okay, you know, it's every person for himself is coming back again to the fore. So it's a constant tension. But the West was always seen, and Westerners always saw themselves as the embodiment of the rugged individualists. We do stuff for ourselves, and government better get out of the way. Well, the fundamental irony behind all this is the West was a creation of the nation as a whole. It was a creation of the federal government. In contrast to the 13 original states, those were all states before they became a nation. But every square foot of territory in the West was originally federal public land before it became individual states. So when Westerners stand on their soapbox or maybe stand ride on their horseback, you know, and proclaim government get out of the way, well, it betrays a perhaps willful ignorance of history because the federal government was absolutely essential to the settlement of the West. And the West is this place of the wide open spaces where, okay, the individual can do what the individual does. But in fact, parts of the West, California, kind of the, the archetypal Western state, was in the 1850s the most urban state in the country because it was cities and mining camps of 10, 15, 20,000 people before there were any farmers to speak of. And so in the West, things get turned on their head. There's this notion that, okay, the frontier moves progressively West. Well, it did until it hit the Mississippi, but then it leapfrogged clear to the Pacific because there wasn't much in between that people at the time wanted or were able to capitalize on. So the frontier jumps to California and then it backfills. So the last gold rush of all was the one to South Dakota the part of the West closest to the East. Ironies abound in the history of the West. Okay, so from what you're saying, it sounds as if there is a romanticization of the West, both on the part of people who don't live in it and those who do. 
So if, do you think the West is over romanticized? Oh yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, can you imagine a, a genre of movies called Easterns? You know, or, <laughs> I mean, or Southerns or mid Midwesterns or something like that. But just to say, you know, Westerns and Western novels. Now, some of this, I, and I quite, haven't quite figured out the answer to this, but some of it reflects the fact that the characteristic image of the West is the cowboy. Now, there's an irony in this alone, because the cowboy that is typically envisioned is the cowboy who is guiding his herd on the long march, the long trail to Kansas or somewhere. The, the big herd is going somewhere. Well, the days of the long drive were distinctly numbered, and it really lasted about a decade. And the reason for the long drive, originally from Texas to the railheads in Kansas, was that there weren't any railroads that got to Texas yet. And people realized in Texas that the cattle were essentially free for the taking, but they couldn't take them anywhere. There's no market until they could get them to the railroads. So they drove them to the railroads. But the railroads got to Texas within about 10 years. And so the, the long drive of the old TV series Rawhide, I was a kid when this played, and Clint Eastwood was just you know, learning his chops as a cowboy. This was, this was the part that became sort of mythologized more than any other. It, you know, if there is um, a characteristic figure in American mythology, it's the cowboy. I live in Texas. The Dallas football team is called what? The Cowboys. And the Dallas Cowboys have always proclaimed themselves America's team. Now, one of the things I don't know is to what degree this depends on the fact that the cowboy is this figure on a horse. And if you look back in history, mythology, literature, the man on the horse, if you take it far enough back into mythology, the centaur, you know, the man horse together. But there's something about the man on the horse, whether it's a knight in the Middle Ages or a Saracen warrior in the Crusades or whatever it might be. Put a man on the horse and all of a sudden the man is lifted up above the ordinary. And, but he's also this lone figure. So... I don't know what it is, but there's something about that. But that's what sticks. Sort of the myth of the West coalesces around the cowboy, all the way down to you know, the Marlboro Man and the Dallas Cowboys of today. So let's make sure we have our chronology right. This would be after the Civil War when the cattle drives are important. It lasts about a decade. And already the cowboy becomes this mythic hero. And it's instantiated in American mythic history within what, like five, 10 years after that, right? Buffalo yeah. Bill and all that business? Yeah. So now, it, it, to some viewers and listeners, it might sound a little bit like splitting hairs, but, but Buffalo Bill, now, Buffalo Bill's not a cowboy. Buffalo Bill is a buffalo hunter. Now, of course, he rides a horse, and he shoots and kills the, the beast instead of treating them with tender, loving care. So maybe, that, maybe there's a little bit difference there, because the American myth is not the buffalo hunter. In fact, it's not the hunter. It's the cowboy. The cowboy tends to his herd, and the cowboy will also risk his life for the herd. But yes, to get back to the chronology, during the Civil War, the ability of Texans to send longhorn cattle, which had escaped from Spanish control and Mexican control, and roamed the plains of Texas by the hundreds of thousands of millions, the Civil War cut off transport from Texas to the east and to the north. 
At the end of the Civil War, there were probably six million Longhorns in Texas, and they were essentially free for the taking. In fact, people did just go to Mexico and steal cattle, but you could also buy them for 50 cents or a dollar a head. And then you had to get them to really, but you had to do is get them to Chicago, to the slaughterhouses in Chicago. And the way you got them to Chicago was to put them on a train. And trains were coming toward Texas, but they were better developed on the Great Plains. And so they, they went to Kansas. But within, well, actually, each season, as the railroad progressed farther out across the Kansas Plains, the end point of the cattle drives moved farther west because the more east they were, the more likelihood that the cattle would actually trample on farmers' fields and the, the cowboys would have to cut fences and do all that stuff. But then eventually the railroad got to Texas, and so then they all had to do is drive the cattle to Fort Worth, which became the great entrepot to the, the national beef industry. But by the end of that time, I should add, by the end of that time, excuse me, that doesn't end the story of the cowboy entirely because there still remains the northern plains. So the cowboys are originally on the, the southern plains, and the cowboy is essentially an Americanized version of the Mexican vaquero. And when the northern plains are open, it, 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 just, it so happens that cattle, the longhorns, can survive winters on the northern plains. Nobody knew this could happen, but when the Transcontinental Railroad was being built, they would drive cattle to the railroad going through places like Nebraska during warm weather. And if they didn't eat all the cattle by the time winter came, the cattle were just left to fend for themselves. And they'd come back the next spring to discover, oh, they're still there. They're alive and they have calves. They seem to be doing okay. So then there were cattle drives to places like the Dakota Territory and to Montana, which is in Lonesome Dove, the epic Larry McMurtry story. That's where they're taking the cattle there. So the cowboys are still around, but they gradually realize that the cattle can, maybe five seasons out of six, they can survive the winters, but the six seasons will be so cold, they're all gonna freeze. So the cattle industry undergoes this big change. And one of the big changes, and you alluded to this earlier, one of the big changes is that you have to invest some money into running a cattle business. You have to build barns, you have to build fences, you have to buy, pay and other feed for them for the winter. And what happens is the individuals get pushed out. So when the cattle drives first began, you or I could get on a horse and go get 600 head of cattle and drive them to Kansas and make some money. By the 1880s and 1890s, the industry is being taken over by corporations. There's a huge beef bubble where speculative money comes in from the East, it comes in from, Brit and from Britain and other parts of Europe. And people are going to make their millions in the cattle business. And so the role of the cowboy, uh, it changes over time. And you get these old timers who are lamenting the passing of the days when they could just ride the range with their cattle. Now they have to, they have to pitch hay, they have to mend fences, they have to do stuff. They discover that they're basically manual laborers on horseback. Bill, in your research, did you find much about cowboying being sort of a laboratory of democracy in that, yeah, you had sort of the white crackers on the one hand, but you also had, you alluded to the vaqueros, you know, up from Mexico, who go all the way back to El Andalus in the Middle Ages, you know, in their tradition. And then you also had, after the Civil War, the freed African-Americans. A lot of them became very fine cowboys. So you had this 
this interracial mix of people. Did you find much evidence or much work on that uh, laboratory of democracy? The phenomenon you described definitely happened. And I guess you, if you wanted to put a nice face on it, you could call it a laboratory of democracy. It, to me, it seemed really much more like, you know, in the lousy jobs, the people who can't do better get stuck there. And if you were of Mexican descent living in Texas, you probably didn't have much education, but you could be a cowboy, you could be a vaquero. And if you were a freedman and you didn't want to stick around in Mississippi or Georgia after the Civil War, you could go west. And you could get a job if you were willing to do the hard, dreary, sometimes dangerous work of being a cowboy. And, you know, racial views didn't go away. And so black people on the frontier, they had to deal with prejudice. Mexicans who ventured too far north from Mexico, they had to deal with prejudice. But there was a fundamental recognition that if you can do the job, a job that needs being done, then we'll tolerate your differences. So it was a very rough and ready kind of acceptance. It's kind of like in war, you know, whoever the oh. guy is next to you in the foxhole, if they're helping save your life or your unit's life, you know, we're all equal in that sense. And well, so in that regard, the American West had long acted as a kind of filter, making the West more egalitarian than the East. And there was a kind of obvious, when you think about it, fundamental reason for this. And that is people who were really well off, rich people didn't go West because they were doing fine where they were. People don't go out into a new territory and undertake a new life and the hardships that they entail without reason. So if things are just fine, you stay where you are. So the rich people didn't go west. And the really poor people didn't go west either, because you had to have some wherewithal to buy your outfit. People who are going to California, for example, they were advised, you know, you need to have this certain kit to go. If you're going to go to Oregon, you had to be able to buy a wagon or a share of a wagon or at least provisions to get you through the first year. And so the poorest people didn't go. The richest people didn't go. And so the mere task of getting west, it tended to filter out the top and filter out the bottom. The result was at a very practical level, there was this middle stratum that populated the west at the beginning. And then add to that something we were just talking about, and that is that in the West, pretense didn't get you very far. So if you were the son of an elitist family in Virginia or in New York City, if you didn't have talent, it was disguised by all the other stuff that went with the superstructure of society there. But in the West, it was pretty hard to hide behind either lack of effort or lack of intelligence or lack of diligence. And so people in the West were valued to a greater degree than in the East on what they could accomplish. And this gets back to something we we're talking about. If you were uh, Tejano, a Texan of Mexican descent, and you could really handle those cattle, then you were in great demand. And if you were, if you were uh, um, an African-American from Florida, and you had learned to deal with cows in Florida. Florida, I think they called them cowmen or something like that. Um, you could go be a cowboy in the West. If you could do the job, then you were accepted. So in the days when of the, the California gold rush, people went West 
They went from the American East. They went from the South. They went from all over the place. And some of the Southerners took their slaves with them. And nobody knew at first whether California was going to be a free state or a slave state when applied for admission. And they held a, a constitution convention in Monterey, and they got around to discussing it. And they finally concluded that this was going to be a free state. And it wasn't out of any embrace of egalitarianism, or it wasn't for lack of racism, which indeed abounded in the gold field. But as somebody put it, you know, since in a place where we all work like slaves, we don't need to call, you know, we, we don't need to make special category for slaves. You cover so much history of the West and dreams of El Dorado from the Ice Age migrations of the Native Americans to Black Elk, who dies within living memory. In fact, I had forgotten, Bill, that he had died almost up to the time when you and I were around, you know? Right, yeah. Um, and I was just curious because of that extreme scope of history, what was the most difficult episode or thing to write about in your book? I wouldn't say a single one, but there were several massacres that took place between Indians and whites on the plains and in various other parts of the West. One of the things that characterized the West from the beginning of my history in 1803 to the point where I end my history at the beginning of the 20th century, so I cover about 100 years of Western history, a thing that characterized the West was the violence that was part and parcel of life in the West. Now, not exactly the violence that often portrayed in TV shows like Deadwood, where it looked, you, you get the impression if you're simply walking down the street of Deadwood, you might get shot in the crossfire. Um, no, it wasn't like that. Uh, there were places where the violence took place um, and ordinary people just lived their ordinary lives, but it was a place that was characterized by violence in the following way. For this entire period and more precisely, from 1803, Louisiana Purchase, to 1890, the massacre at Wounded Knee, there were groups of Native Americans who contested by arms American, that is U.S., control of the West. And as long as that contest took place, there were massacres. Most of the massacres were of Indians by whites, but there was retaliation by, by Indians against whites. And I... I could have written about dozens of them. I allowed myself just a few to get the, the picture of what was going on. But that was the most difficult part of the story. Because there are other aspects of the story where people die of disease and people die of exposure and, and that sort of thing. And you know, um, a lost life is a tragedy. But the deliberate infliction of uh, that kind of tragedy, That's, it's a difficult thing to write, but human history is sometimes difficult. And as I recall, Bill, that is actually one of your major themes uh, at the beginning of the book that you announced, that the violence of the West is, is something that you cannot tease out of it. It's, it's just part and parcel of the story. Uh, go ahead. I was gonna say, so I, I had to decide when to end the book. I've explained how I decided to start the book in the early 19th century. I decided to end the book in the early 20th century, in part because by the early 20th century, that violence had ended. At least it was no longer organized in the way it had been, organized in the sense that there were bands of Indians and troops of cavalry 
typically, that would go at each other, and they would fight these pitched battles. Yeah, I mean, there were still quotidian murders and things like that on the streets of San Francisco or Los Angeles, but, but in terms of the organized violence that was an essential theme of the existence of the West, that had ended by the 1890s. So that was part of the reason that I stopped it there. Another part of the reason is, and it's related to this, is by the 20th century, the West is beginning to look more and more like the East. So if I want to describe California, or let's focus on, say, San Francisco. If I want to describe San Francisco in the 1850s, San Francisco is a world apart from any other city in the United States. You have to place it in the West and know that it is this city that doesn't have any governance. There are vigilance committees that are keeping order in San Francisco in the 1850s. New York, Boston, Philadelphia, they were way beyond that kind of thing. In fact, they've really never quite been in that state. So San Francisco in the 1850s is this place apart. If I wanted to write about San Francisco in the 1950s, though, by the 1950s, San Francisco is pretty much a city like other cities. Or to put it another way, if you want to understand California in the 20th century, the place to start is to study America in the 20th century and then look at Western variations on that theme. But if you want to study the West in the 19th century, you have to start with the West, and then you can reflect America in that, but the West is this place apart. Now, some of the characters that I focus on are people who live through the transition. A character that I use as a literary device to start my story in the prologue is Theodore Roosevelt, but he's also sort of the last figure in the book because I describe him as the first Western president. Now, he wasn't from the West. He was born in New York City and was a city kid from New York. But at an early formative time, in his mid-20s, he acquired a ranch in Dakota Territory. And it was a really important experience for him in making him the man and the public figure he became. Perhaps more important, it was an influential moment in his life for public perceptions of Roosevelt. Roosevelt say, said, the West made me the man I became. And he knew it partly internally, but to how the challenges of the West caused him to blossom in a way he hadn't before. But I think even more to the point for his political career, it made him appealing to Americans who could see him as this figure who was more than just a New Yorker. Yeah, it, of course, I, I love the story. You mentioned this in, in the book, but there he goes to the West with his Brooks Brothers suit, basically. <laughs> I mean, who does that? Yeah, well, so you, when he got to Dakota, they called him the dude, and <laughs> they couldn't figure out. They'd never seen anybody try to round up cattle with these thick glasses that he had to wear. But, and at first, they, they called him the dude, and they figured he'd last you know, maybe two hours. But finally, they gave him credit for doggedness, and he stuck it out. And when he demonstrated that he could ride as long as they could, and he would put up with whatever they could give him, then they, they gave him the respect that he deserved in that regard. And that's kind of a democracy, isn't it? A meritocracy. Yeah, yeah You can precisely. be on your, the highest of your high horse uh, back in, in Manhattan, but you go out west, you're reduced to that country, that, that level of what Tocqueville would have said, uh, an equality of condition, and you got to prove yourself out there regardless. And Roosevelt valued the opinion 
of those cowboys that he worked with in the West, far more than the opinion of any intellectuals or politicians in the East. It's remarkable. Just his story in particular is remarkable. I thought it was, it was wonderful to start the book with TR. Okay, this actually segues to the next question I wanted to ask you, Bill, and that is, you write about so many interesting people. I mean, every chapter, there, there are many chapters in this book, and there's, there's somebody that you want to learn more about. Who would you want to sit next to at a dinner party of all those people you write about? Joseph Meek was my model of the mountain man. And the mountain man, that was the name that was given to fur trappers. Joe Meek was born in Virginia, but as a young man or an older teenager, when he was going to have to figure out what to do with his life, he essentially ran away from home. He rejected the plow, and he wanted to find adventure. And Where do you find adventure in 18th, 19th century America? In the West. So he went West, and he found his way to St. Louis, where he was recruited to become a fur trapper. Now, he didn't know that the reason that the directors of the fur companies went to St. Louis every spring to recruit was that the casualty rate, the attrition rate among the trappers was pretty high. <laughs> they ran out of people every year and they had to get some more. But he goes off and he becomes this, this fur trapper. Now, I kind of knew the story of Joe Meek because I grew up in Oregon and there, Joe Meek is uh, kind of a hero of the early history of Oregon. But he's also this fantastically colorful character. And he, he, was, he was literate enough, but he wasn't somebody who wrote letters. So the historian dealing with Joe Meek has to rely on Joe Meek. And Joe Meek was, he was almost Oregon's version of Davy Crockett. Because, but it wasn't just Oregon. By the time he got to Oregon, the fur trade had disappeared. And so for about 10 years of his life, he was this fur trapper, and he had to deal with grizzly bears. He had to deal with hostile Indians. There were friendly Indians. There were hostile Indians. He had to deal with competing trappers. He had to deal with the cold. He had to deal with all the stuff that was involved in it. And, but he was also, he apparently had this great personality and a sense of humor, and he either had by inheritance or he developed the ability to tell stories. And so he sat down in old age with a woman named Frances Fuller, and she took down essentially his autobiography. So there are all these stories about Joe Meek, and they're really good stories because Joe Meek is the one who tells the story. And so I would just love to sit around a campfire or in a rocking chair next to the elderly Joe Meek. And it gave him a good deal of a laugh to say in old age, he was born in Washington County, Virginia. And he lived his last year and finally died in Washington County, Oregon. So there was this nice closure to his long life, but an absolutely fascinating character. Oh, that really is. And speaking of Virginians, uh, let's say something at least about Owen Wister's novel, the Virginian, and why is that novel so important to American culture? Well, so yeah, this is one of the really um, strange things, perhaps even part of the irony we were talking about, where one of the great novels and one of the great 
the greatest early novel, certainly, of the American West is called The Virginian. And so one would think naively that it's going to be set in, I don't know, bluegrass country, Virginia, or something like that. But no, it's about this Virginian who goes west. And he works on a ranch in Wyoming, and he has these adventures, and it's kind of the good versus bad, and the, the white hat and the black hat, and the he's falls in love, but, you know, the strong, silent type and all this. It's a great story. But it's also, it's told by this narrator. And the narrator is Owen Wister's alter ego, who observes this guy. And one of the things that made the book so interesting to me, and one of the reasons that I deal with Owen Wister and the book and the character in my book, is that it is told in almost two stages. So he tells of events that had occurred about 20 years before, 20 years earlier. But by the time he gets to narrating the events, he has to admit that the West that he's describing has already passed. And so he, Wister says that I began to write this book in the present tense, but I had to finish it in the past tense. Because the West that I described, the West that this Virginian character inhabits, is no longer with us. And so one of the reasons for the success of the book is the wistful tone in which it is written. And it's also one of the secrets of the success of Theodore Roosevelt. Now, years ago, I wrote a biography of Theodore Roosevelt, of which the subtitle is The Last Romantic. And as appealing as the West was to Easterners during the days of the gold rush or the great migration to Oregon or the move to Texas to claim large blocks of land from the Mexican government, as appealing as it was then, it became even more appealing as the West moved from actuality into history and then into myth because it was this time, it was this golden age of American history. And you and I and everybody, we all have our golden age. And typically, it's associated with some time relating to our childhood, when things were simpler, when things were clearer. And of course, they were. Things were simpler for me when I was eight years old than they are when I'm closer to 68. I mean, that's just the way it is. But we tend to extrapolate from our own experience. And so people like Theodore Roosevelt, Theodore Roosevelt got to the West when the West was already becoming something else. He went West originally to hunt buffalo. If he'd been there 10 years earlier, he would have encountered millions of buffalo. He didn't get there until 1883. And it took him a week of hard looking to find the one remaining buffalo in that part of Dakota territory. Of course, he probably shot the buffalo. Um, and then he became a conservationist later. But it's really, you know, yeah. You don't know what you got till it's gone. And that was the, the attitude toward the West. So as the West moved from reality into myth, it became sort of even more important. Nobody bothered to write Western novels much. And, and they weren't taken at all seriously until the West had faded into the past tense, as Owen Wister described. As we're talking about this transition, Bill, I can't help but think about uh, a young progressive historian uh, from Wisconsin, got his uh, uh, doctorate back east and uh, wrote about the frontier in American history, the importance of the frontier, Frederick Jackson Turner. 
the Turner thesis, of course, has been one of those giant uh, paradigm shifting theses in American history. What do you think of the Turner thesis now in retrospect? Well, Gleaves, as you and I know, and anybody else who's been to graduate school in history knows, the first thing that graduate students discover or profess, graduate students in American history, is how wrong Turner was and how limited the Turner thesis was. And okay, if you're going to be a professional historian, then you have to at least act as though you've risen above the Turner thesis. It's way too simplistic. It's way too Eurocentric. It's way too all that stuff. But the fact is that it is the most durable paradigm for viewing American history. If there wasn't something essentially true at its core, I wouldn't have mentioned it in my book. You wouldn't have mentioned it right now. You know, there are plenty of other models of history that have come and gone. So what Turner said in the most basic form is that one of the things, he would go so far as to say, the most important thing that differentiated American society, culture, institutions, and values from European countries, societies, values, and cultures was the existence of empty land to the West. Now, the first thing that other historians, especially more recent in the last 50 years, have taken Turner to task for is that, wait, those lands weren't empty. They were Native Americans. So where are the Native Americans in Turner's story? And it's a fair enough criticism, except that Turner, Turner had actually dealt with Indian tribes in the West. So he knew they were there. But comparatively speaking, the West was empty compared to France, Britain, Germany. So yes, it was you know, relatively empty. And for by the kind of procedure, the process, the same dynamic that I described earlier about how the West, the, the decision to go West and the effort of going West filtered out the really rich and the really poor. So the West had this sort of democratically selective value simply getting there. And then there was the whole business of, well, what can you do? In the West, people were willing to look at you in terms of what you could do. Did, or is everyone looked at equally? No, I mean, life is never that way. But it's, it's striking, for example, that women achieved greater rights, including the right to vote first in the West, because the value of women to society, to families and to the broader society was very well known. I should add that Western states tried to attract settlers and settlements. What did they have to offer? These days, when states are competing for corporations to locate Amazon's headquarters number two, or a new chip fabricating plant by Samsung or something like that, they throw tax abatements at them. They basically throw dollars at them. The governments of the territories and the states didn't have dollars to throw. So what they did instead was to give something that was free, but nonetheless highly valued. Full participation politically. So women could come to Wyoming territory, which is where they first got the vote. Right. They could become full citizens. So if you were a woman, that's where you'd want to go. And so there is this sort of democratizing effect of the West. Another thing that Turner said was that in the West, institutions had to be recreated, created and recreated again and again. So in fact, when Virginia, well, Virginia didn't simply expand to the West. Virginia heaved off Kentucky and Kentucky created, wrote its own constitution, created its own cities 
its own, you know, all the professional organizations, educational system, the whole thing. And this was repeated again and again. So each time the process was reiterated. And as it was reiterated, the people who were doing it could learn from the example of things that had done before. Now, one of the things that Turner didn't stress, but I think is actually centrally important, was an insight that an Easterner and a Southerner, Thomas Jefferson, had early on. And he was one of the principal figures behind writing the original Northwest Ordinance, which dealt with the issue of what do we do with the territory that is not any single state, the territory that belongs to the country that's not a single state. And Jefferson insisted on, and it was accepted, that the new territories eventually would become states fully equal to the original states. And this is something that had never been done before, but it actually was crucial to the development of the American West and the United States as a whole. Because in other countries, if new territories were absorbed, they came in as subordinate to the original. So when the British made India a colony, they had no idea. India was not going to become equal of the British, of the British Empire, of the United Kingdom. In fact, this is what prompted the creation of the United States. When people like Benjamin Franklin said, hey, let us in as equal to people who live in the United Kingdom, and, and all will be fine. They said, no, you are going to be subordinate to us. And Jefferson said, we're not going to repeat that mistake. And so when people went west, they knew they could eventually become the equals of the east. Davy Crockett went to Texas not to die in the Alamo. He went to Texas because he had lost his bid for re-election in Tennessee. He was going to Texas because he had in mind that he was going to become one of Texas's first two senators. And because Texas was going to get the state government, he was going to be a senator. So this process of recreating the American experience that was at the heart of what Turner was describing, that was definitely true. Now, one can nibble away at the edges and talk about the people he left out. But, you know, it's sort of like um, Isaac Newton. Okay, Isaac Newton got some stuff really right. Now, some of the details he got wrong had to be worked out later by people like Albert Einstein. But at the heart, there was something really true there. And I, that's my feeling about Frederick Jackson Turner. Well, in this uh, mythologizing of the West that goes on, you know, mostly in the 20th century, begins at the end of the 19th century. But uh, you have in Hollywood, for example, John Ford, John Wayne, Clint Eastwood, whom you mentioned. You got uh, then the spaghetti westerns produced by Italians who filmed their westerns in Spain. I'm just curious, what do you think is the greatest western of all time, and what's your favorite western? Ah, uh, boy. So. Um, first, I'm going to start, I'm going to answer the question first by uh, referring to novels. And the two novels that I think are the great novels of the West are The Virginian, which we described, and then Larry McMurtry's Lonesome Dove. So those are fantastic they, in terms of literature. In terms of movies, I like um, Rio Lobo, which is, um, you know, it's sort of standard stuff, but there's a kind of sense of humor that's sometimes missing. Now, at the same time, if I look at any number of things by Clint Eastwood, Clint Eastwood is not known for his sense of humor on camera, but he sort of came to own the, the Western starting with his rawhide days. And then even if you want to consider, and maybe we should, I hadn't thought of this before now, but maybe we should consider, you know, the Clint Eastwood and his Dirty Harry incarnation. 
the road cop in San Francisco. There's a very sort of Western feel to that. I actually hadn't thought about that until now, but I'm going to include that. So I don't know that I have a single Western movie that I like the best, but it's something I still go back to again and again. I'm with you with regard to Lonesome Dove, I think, and the Virginian. I think Lonesome Dove, which describes one of these long tail drives, goes up to what well, Montana. I think it goes yeah. way far. Yeah. North. Great, great uh, book and series. Although I think Larry McMurtry's uh, view of the Indians is is pretty doggone dark. Uh, oh yeah, consistently. Well, sure. Uh, so he's not I mean, politically correct at all. Right. And one of the things that anyone sort of has to I'm going to almost say, you know, take for granted. Although, as you and I know, being teachers, you don't take anything for granted with 18-year-olds. Um, and that is times change, tastes change. So what Owen Wister could write in the first decade of the 20th century would be seen as woefully lacking in certain regards. And Larry McMurtry, you know, writing in the 1970s and 80s. So things do change in that regard. Um, but leaving that aside, there's something at the heart of those that is still very appealing. Bill, where's your favorite place in the West to go back to? It's the coast of Northern Oregon. Uh -huh. Although, well, actually, I have to say, I sort of, I'm going to answer two questions. Uh, that answer in two ways. Answer that question in two ways. And at the moment, um, my successors, my children, have instructions that when I die, I want my ashes to be divided between the Oregon coast, the Northern Oregon coast, where I spent childhoods and my kids' childhoods and now uh, grandkids out there and the uh, slopes of Mount Hood. My, er my very earliest memory, in fact, one of the reasons that I wrote this book, my very er earliest memory uh, takes place in a forest on the southeast, southwestern slopes of Mount Hood. So my ashes can be spread on above the tree line on Mount Hood, as well as on the sandy shores of the Pacific. Now that's quite romantic, Bill. <laughs> Let me just ask you a couple of Brian Lamb questions about the book. So we, you told us that an editor is the one who came up with the idea and uh, you were susceptible to write because you'd already written about the West in a number of other of your books and you've been teaching in the West at University of Texas, Austin for so long. Uh, did you visit archives to write this book? Or were you able I, to get just about everything you wanted from online? A combination of the two. So. In fact, there are very many archives that are now more available online than they are in actuality. One of the principal characters in my book is Narcissa Whitman. She was a Methodist missionary who traveled from upstate New York to Oregon in the 1830s. So she and another woman uh, were with their husbands, were the first two women, white women, to travel to the West. And this was a really big deal because there was a gen this general perception that, well, okay, if it's just men going, they might be miners, they might be hunters, they might be cattle drivers. But when women go, that's, that's when civilization is going. So she kept a diary. And the diary is available online. So there's stuff that has become available online that is, in some cases, hardly available in actual, you know, in physical form. So there's that. I did rely on archival work that I had done here in Texas when I was writing my earlier book about Texas. And I had done separate archival work on research for a book about the California gold rush. 
But in fact, so those were books that I researched about 15 years ago. And there's no way that I could have done those without going to those archives. But nowadays, if I were doing the same research, probably 90% of that I would have found online. It's online now. So it's remarkable what one can do online. The other thing is, and this is related to, it's not, ar it's not archival work, but it's library work. So as recently as 15 years ago, it was a lot harder to get my hands on a book that was published in the 1840s or 1850s, say a first edition of Francis Parkman's The Oregon Trail. To get a hold of that, you had to go to a special library. It might be a library at Harvard, the Beinecke Library at Yale, or the Bancroft Library at the University of California, Berkeley. Nowadays, it's a lot easier to get a book that was published in 1850 than it is a book that was published in 1950 for the reason that all the older stuff is now out of copyright. It's been scanned and is available through Google Books. So I wrote this book, as I write many of my books whenever I can, from the perspective of and often in the words of individuals who were there. So Francis Parkman takes me through the Sioux villages on the plains in the 1840s. And here's somebody who was very literate and who was writing down what he saw. Um, when I wrote about the early history of California, Charles Henry Dana uh, writes the book Two Years Before the Mass. Sorry, Richard Henry Dana uh, writes Two Years Before the Mass. And it's his account. He's a very literate guy, and he goes on to a, a very distinguished career. But he tells his story about what was going on in California. So when I can find a guide, somebody who is going to tell what he sees, write down what he sees, when I describe the, the cattle drives, when I describe the migration from Missouri to Oregon, when I find somebody who kept a diary, who kept notes, who wrote about it afterwards, then that becomes my guide and through my writing, my reader's guide to what was there. I'm someone who gives great preference to primary sources over secondary sources. I even tell this to my students. You know, don't rely on what historians have written. Go to what the eyewitnesses and the participants themselves have written. Become your own historian. To the extent I can, I like to make my readers my own historian. And some of this is because that's kind of stuff that, uh, that hooked me on history. What percentage of your research had you completed by the time you started writing? Boy, this is a difficult question for me to answer for any of my projects for the reason that I teach American history. And so by the time I decide to write about a subject, whether it's the West or it's Ulysses Grant in the Civil War, it's Franklin Roosevelt in the Great Depression and World War II, I have been teaching, that is lecturing, thinking, writing in some respect or another, about these subjects for a long time. When I wrote about Ulysses Grant, for example, I probably started my book on Grant already knowing 80% of what I needed to know to write the book. I have friends who are not teachers, who are simply writers. And some, some of them have been journalists. And so when they undertake a project, so a friend of mine, Sam Gwynn, who lives here in Austin, was going to write a book about Stonewall Jackson. And Sam is a great journalist, but he didn't know anything particular about the Civil War. So we had to kind of get up to speed by learning all about the Civil War. So I have a big advantage there. But it also makes it very difficult for me to say, so how much did I have to learn? When did my uh, research end? But I will say this, that 
in comparison with a lot of other historians, and I think writers generally, I start writing sooner than most of them do. So I tell my students, as soon as you know what you want to write about, write a first paragraph. At least let the reader know why you want to write about it. Imagine the, the opening paragraph of the prologue. Write a table of contents. Get to thinking about how you're going to organize this. So my model to my students, and this is partly to spur them to write, write as much as you can. Stop writing when you need to know more so you can keep writing. Then go find what more you need. I definitely think that it is impossible to adopt the model of go learn everything there is to know about the subject and then write it down because you can never learn everything there is to know about the subject. We were talking about Frederick Jackson Turner earlier. Turner never wrote a book. He never wrote the book that he should have written to expand his article, originally a lecture, about the frontier in American history. And the reason he never wrote a book was he kept filling out those note cards, believing there was more to learn, more to learn, more to learn. He never got to the end of it before he got to the end of his life. So I start writing early. And I write up to the edge of my knowledge. And then, oh, okay, now I need to go find some more. And I have to say, you and I have been doing this long enough to know that the, when we started out, if you write up to the edge of your knowledge, then you have to go to an archive somewhere. At the very least, you have to go to the library and get 10 or 15 books to let you know what to write next. Now, so much is right there at our fingertips that if you kind of know what you're doing, the, the whole writing process um, can become more efficient than it was. I'll say this too, that you and I have both been doing this for a while. The first book is by far the hardest to write because you don't think, man, am I ever going to get to the end of this? Can I do this? But once you've done it, oh, okay, I can do this. As I tell my students, you know, when they, or anybody, when they ask, so how do you write? I write one paragraph at a time. And the only difference between the essays that I'm grading of my students right now and uh, a book that I've written on the American West is the number of paragraphs. Yes, well, you are a very disciplined writer. Bill, I've got to tell our viewing audience that one time we had you in to speak and you had some downtime between visiting a class. I think I took you out to a high school and then you were talking to people over at the Ford Museum and you had, we had you all scheduled, but you had about 20 minutes of downtime and you were sitting in the lobby of the Howenstein Center working on a book chapter. And I asked you about that and you do it in airports. And I want to ask you, it's, it's the discipline, but it's, it's the fact that you uh, will, are able to, to put out a book, it seems, about one a year. You're on pace to do that. How many months did it take you to write Dreams of El Dorado? Well, it probably, it was my principal project for about a year and a half. Okay. Now, and of course that overlapped with other stuff. But I have to say, you give me too much credit for self-discipline. Because one of the reasons, no, one of the reasons that I do this is that I really like to write. And, and one of the reasons that I say I write one paragraph at a time, I really enjoy the process of writing a paragraph, of taking a thought, a, a scene, an idea, and shaping it into a paragraph. I had this idea in my head that it's a little bit like a carpenter, a woodworker, somebody who's going to make a chest of drawers or a table. And you start with this rough stuff, and you fashion it, and you, you maybe you plane it down, and when you get the pieces together, you sand it, and you go back over it, and you make it a little bit better and a little bit better. 
I have this standing sort of uh, promise, I don't know if it's a promise or a threat to my students, that if I could ever write the perfect paragraph, I would stop. You know, but I never have. I try to write paragraphs, but but I get a great deal of pleasure out of just doing this. It's my hobby. I happen to get paid for it, so I guess it's not called a hobby anymore. But this is the reason that I, you know, when I have 20 minutes, if I sort of know what I'm writing about, I can write a paragraph in 20 minutes. My kids, when they were growing up, they they were a little bit confused when they were little about how long a period of time five minutes was or 10 minutes. But because I would say, and they thought in terms of paragraphs. So let me finish this paragraph and I'll get with you. So uh, it, I think I benefit from having a short attention span. If I have friends who are writers who say that they can't write unless they have a whole morning, four hours, or someone will say, unless I have a whole week or summer or some other sabbatical, I, I'll write for 20 minutes. Even if I have the whole day, I'll write for 20 minutes and then I'll go do something else. Then I'll come back and do some more. But I still enjoy it. And because I enjoy it, I, I really don't count the time that I'm doing. I don't enjoy every part of the bookmaking process equally. I find proofreading tedious in yes. part because I've been over this so many times by the time I get there. But the other thing is that I'm a constant tinkerer and I cannot read a sentence or a paragraph of my own without thinking I could make it better. But by the time it's already set in type, you are really constrained on the changes you can make. And my editors, uh, they have to say, you know, don't fiddle with stuff. And I've gotten pretty good at, okay, keeping my hands off. But I still, there are moments, oh, man, can I change that? I don't know. So, but no, I, I really I, enjoy it. I feel very lucky to, to be able to do what I do. I know my good friend in Houston, not too far from you, is watching this. And I know I drive him and the editors at the Imaginative Conservative crazy because I'm constantly tinkering as well. I mean, I'll take it up to the last minute, you know, to, to make some changes that I think sound better. You know, it just things evolve. Well, Bill, I want to wrap up my formal questions. Let's, I think you've got another book coming out here pretty soon, and we're going to have you come to Grand Rapids and talk about it. Tell us about your book. Okay, well, actually, Gleaves, I have to sneak in a plug for a book that is coming out next week. And oh. I don't know if you can see it, but it is called Haiku History, The American <laughs> Saga, Three Lines at a Time. And it's published by the University of Texas Press. And it is a compilation of haikus, the Japanese rhyme uh, model of poetry form that I have been using for the last, well, nine years to write a history of the United States. And it originated with the birth of Twitter, which now is one of the oldest of the social media platforms. But when Twitter was new, I got to thinking as a writer, what does one do with 140 characters? As an author, I'm thinking in terms of you know, 400 pages for a book or uh, 25 pages for a journal article or six pages for a magazine article or something like that. What do you do with 140 characters? Now, I've long had this conceit that history can be written at any length. You can write a history of the world in 800 words or 8 million words. The only difference is the degree of detail. So I was telling this to one of my classes one day, and I was also telling them, okay, for your term papers, use this form. Actually, you don't have to use this form. I strongly recommend it. But it's worked for a lot of people, so it'll probably work for you. And as a throwaway line, I say, well, you don't, I'm not going to require you to do it. Genius can make its own rules. And if you want to write history in the form of haikus, uh, go ahead. 
Well, so a student raised his hand and said, Professor Brands, have you ever written history in the form of haikus? And I thought, well, no, I hadn't. But at that moment, a light went on. I thought, you know, I could. And furthermore, I could do it over Twitter because the typical haiku, 17 syllables, fit in the original Twitter 140 characters. So I started. And I've been doing it. I'm still doing it now. But I was asked by the University of Texas Press a few years ago to pull out some when I got to the present. I've circled back, so now I'm redoing, I'm expanding on my coverage of the Civil War. But when I got close to the present, I said, okay, we're going to do it. So this is the result. And this book is coming out just next week. But Very uh, congratulations. Book, thank you. The book that's coming out in the fall is about John Brown, the abolitionist, and Abraham Lincoln. And it's called The Zealot and the Emancipator. And it's about those two. And the way that they answered a fundamental question that has to be answered by every generation of Americans or people who live in democracy. And that is, what is the moral obligation of the citizen to rectify wrongs and evils that are being allowed or even encouraged by our government? And at any given time, there are things that our government does that individuals see as not right. And this could be individuals who were morally opposed to the Vietnam War, or people who marched for civil rights reform in the 1950s, or people who advocated the vote for women, or whatever it might be. And in the case of John Brown and Abraham Lincoln in the 1850s, the question is, the question boils down to, what does a good man do to confront the evil of slavery? And John Brown and Abraham Lincoln adopted courses that at face value seemed to be quite different. John Brown wanted to start a war against slavery. Abraham Lincoln tried to avoid, prevent a war about slavery. The irony of history, and here we get back to the ironies of history, is that John Brown failed to start his war, the one he wanted against slavery, and Abraham Lincoln failed to avoid the war against slavery. So Brown, Lincoln got the war that Brown wanted. And so I tell the parallel story of these two and how they wrestled with this issue. And that's coming out in October. And we're going to have you back in Grand Rapids so you can regale us and, and give us deep insight into that, Bill. A, a question that I have to ask about that, is this an idea that you had been percolating uh, in your brain or did you have an editor suggest this? Where did this come from? The longer I teach, the more I conclude that at the heart of history, human history, human affairs, are some fundamental questions. And the questions, the big questions, are essentially moral questions. I wrote about Ulysses Grant in the Civil War because I wanted to answer the question, a question that I pose to my students every semester. Why is there war? Why do wars happen? And by looking at the Civil War, by looking at someone like Ulysses Grant, who was a warrior. He was really gifted. He was a genius at war and really not at that much else. He was okay as a president. He's pretty good as a president. But before the Civil War, he wasn't good at anything. So why do wars happen? That was the question that motivated that. When I wrote about Benjamin Franklin, the question was, what prompts somebody to rebel against his own country? What made George Washington and Benjamin Franklin into rebels? They were doing really well. So in the case of Abraham Lincoln, this, anybody who teaches American history, who tries to describe to students today 
who find it almost incomprehensible that honest, upright, God-fearing people in the 1840s and 1850s could believe that slavery, if not a good thing, was at least an evil that had to be tolerated for the time being. So it's that question. I have to, I try to, I try to make my students understand that people who lived back then, whether slaveholders themselves or people who simply tolerated slaveholding, can't be simply written off as these benighted figures on whom enlightenment hadn't come. No, they were people wrestling with issues, moral issues that were as real to them as moral issues are to us today. And so and I ask my students today to volunteer questions that they think that our society is either avoiding or not dealing with. And so this is at the heart of that story. And it's kind of at the, the heart of much of American history. We're still grappling with what that question meant. I mean, we always do in any democracy. What does a good man do when his country is involved in great evil? I can't wait to read it, Bill. This is what makes you one of the great teachers in our time, because you do take on these really tough moral questions that don't have easy answers and, in fact, just spin off more questions. So thank you for that work. We've got a lot of viewers queued up to ask questions, sure. speaking of, and let's bring them into the conversation. A viewer asks, what was the most surprising thing you discovered during your research for Dreams of El Dorado? The most surprising thing? Hmm. This is a hard one for me to answer because, as I was saying earlier, I teach about this stuff, and I've been teaching about it for 30 years. So I can't say that during the research for Dreams of El Dorado, I found anything particularly surprising. But I will share uh, sort of a question that was only answered for me after I finished the book. Now, Gleaves, you've got Colorado in your background, and so you know that Colorado uh, is the centennial state. And I'm sure you're aware of the treatment that James Michener gave of Colorado in yes. 1976 on the centennial. The book was called Centennial, and it was about the founding of Colorado. And one of his main characters is a fur trapper very much, and I think actually modeled on Joe Meek, of whom I was speaking earlier. But there are images in the book that play this very large role in the imagination of readers because apparently they played a large role in the imagination of people at the time. And one of the images was of this stone beaver crawling up the ridge line in the front range of the Rocky Mountains. And this is a motif that shows up again and again in the book. And it became of interest to me because I was reading the book in 1976. The book had just come out. I was reading it, and I was also traveling around Colorado for, I was a traveling salesman, and Colorado was part of my territory. And I would drive up and down State 25 by the, the, the front range, and I would look and see if I could see this stone beaver. And I had an extra incentive, because at the same time, my grandmother, who was elderly at the time, she was more or less homebound, she was reading the same book. And... Each evening, I would call my grandmother and we'd compare notes. But I was her eyes on the ground to see if James Michener had gotten the descriptions right. And so she would say each evening, Bill, have you seen the stone beaver? And I had to say, Grammy, 
I haven't been able to find the stone beaver. And I don't know, maybe he just made that up. So it was left there in limbo until this last fall when I was doing a book event in Denver. I was at the Tattered Cover Bookstore in Denver. And I told this story. And as soon as I told the story, somebody came up and said, oh, yeah, you need to go to Estes Park. And if you look at a particular direction on Long's Peak, there's the stone beaver. So unfortunately, my grandmother died. I wasn't able to report that there really was a stone beaver. But maybe that's, at the moment, that's the thing that occurs to me that was, I won't say the most surprising thing, but in some ways, the most gratifying thing. Oh, that's a wonderful story. In fact, I was living in Colorado. I was an undergraduate at the time in 1976. So everybody was reading this book in history classes. And it's, you know, Long's Peak has what's called the notch. And the beaver is just to the right or to the north of the notch. Yeah. That, yeah so and that's, that's when you can see it. Right. So eventually now in this day of Google, after I heard that it really exists, I was able to get some photographs of it. And it requires a little bit of imagination, but I suppose on a, if you're <laughs> sitting around a, a frigid campfire in the middle of the winter and you're looking at okay, It'll look like a beaver. Yes. Another question, a viewer writes, uh, this is from Dave Whitford. Can you comment on the Transcontinental Railroad bringing the beginning of the end of the West, of the Wild West, especially interesting how the North took advantage of the secession of the South to push the project through? Dave's a good friend, so I know this is a good question. He's a, it's a serious question. It's a great question. And so the agreement of the federal government to build a railroad to California was absolutely essential in a number of developments in the history of the West. The first thing it did, and the thing that gave it particular importance at that particular moment was that California, large groups in California were thinking seriously of seceding from the Union. Uh, this is in the early 1860s. Not that they were gonna secede to join the Confederate States of America, they were just gonna secede to form their own republic. Now, uh, one of the reasons for this, of course, was that California was so far from the rest of the country in terms of how long it took you to get there. And it could take four months to walk across the country. And so well, the other thing, the other thing that appealed to Californians was all that gold. What if we kept all that gold here? Then we would be wealthy enough that we could actually be our own country. And something that is not to be minimized in the thinking of potential secessionists, whether Texas, when it was a seceding from Mexico in the 1830s, or southern states when they were seceding from the Union in the 1860s, uh, was the potential of, you know what? Um, we could, I could be a, not just governor of California, I could be president of my own country. Anyway, when California started rumbling about secession, then immediately the Union government of Abraham Lincoln and the Republic said, we gotta get, a we gotta get a railroad to California. Because once we can get a railroad to California, then all of those American, they were, they were in effect expatriates. They had gone out to California and many of them thought they'd never get back because it was so hard to get back. Build a railroad out there and what had taken four months to do on the way out took four days coming home. So the first thing the Transcontinental Railroad did was to make sure that the, the West Coast would not spin off of the rest of the country. That was absolutely crucial. The second thing it did was to engage the Republican Party. And this is interesting, again, one of these ironies of history. The Republican Party have, since about the early 20th century, has often portrayed itself as the party of small government. But the Republican Party in the 1850s and 1860s was a party of big government on behalf of business. And so it was the Republican Party that promoted the Transcontinental Railroad and engineered the, the transfer of land to the railroads and the, underwrote the, the loans that were going to fund the railroad. 
And so the railroad provided, the railroad brought big business to the West in the first and most important way. It connected the country in terms of a transport network, and it laid the way with the other transcontinental roads for the creation of the first nation-sized market. It also, it really sealed the end, sealed the doom of the Native Americans by making the buffalo this article of commerce that could be readily transported to the markets of the West. Before the railroad, there wasn't that much you could do with buffalo. The buffalo hunters would go out and they would kill the buffalo and they would cut out the tongues. The tongues were relatively small and they were kind of a delicacy that could command a high price. But the rest of the carcass just rotted on the ground. But once the railroads came, then you could basically dispose of the entire carcass. And so you could sell the buffalo meat. The buffalo hides could be tanned into a particular leather that was good for belts and pulleys and things like this. So the railroad, and, and physically, the railroad split the northern buffalo herd from the southern buffalo herd. So by bringing the hunters out to the, the buffalo plains, it, it sealed the end of the buffalo, and with it, then the plains tribes depended on the buffalo. So if there was a single event or development or decision that meant the modernization with all that's good and bad about modernization for the West, it was the decision to build the Transcontinental Railroad. And then we have our friend Jason Duncan, a historian at Aquinas College, whom you've met when you've been yes. here, Bill. Hi, Jason. He, he asks the question, how do you position your work in relation to the new Western history? Is it part of the new Western history? Does it stand apart from it? I think we're talking about Patricia Limerick at the University of Colorado. We're talking about Richard White at uh, the University of Washington. Um, and is, has the new Western history made an impact on the hold of the old mythic West on the American imagination? Great question, Jason. Yeah, so the new Western history basically takes on the myth of the American West. And I will say that it has accomplished a lot of good stuff by making histories of the West more inclusive than they would have been. I was able to use the work of Richard White and Patty Limerick and others in writing chapters and parts of my story that simply wouldn't have been possible to write earlier, in part because they hadn't occurred to earlier historians. There is a kind of oppositional aspect to much of the, the new Western history that I basically kind of danced around. So academic historians, and the, the new Western historians were certain they fit squarely within the historical academy, tends to be driven by arguments. And when I was speaking with the editor of Basic Books who proposed this book, I said, I don't want to get engaged in that debate in any kind of direct way. What I want to write is essentially a narrative history of the West. I will draw out of my story morals, lessons, principles, concepts, and so on. So I think that readers of my book will learn a lot more about sort of these big picture questions. But that's not what I'm going to lead with. It's really more um, a difference in emphasis and format than the, the more academic stuff, uh, the so-called new Western historians. But I will certainly say that they have opened up the discussion of the West in ways that it hadn't been opened before but I don't consider myself either one of them or writing in opposition to them. So I, 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 I confess, I'm an academic historian, and I, well, sorry, right, within the academy, and I teach at the University of Texas. But long ago, I was an undergraduate, 
And I concluded that the most boring part of any history course was that obligatory first lecture on historiography. What have the historians been arguing about? And I made a point that as soon as possible, I was, as soon as possible when I became an academic, more precisely, once I got tenure, then I was going to try to just ignore the historiography and let the people who like doing it get engaged. And I was going to focus on the stories. Now, as I say, I think the readers of my books will learn as much in terms of I won't say argument exactly because I don't do it argumentatively, but I draw out themes and you've identified some of the themes that I identified in my book about the irony and the tone of violence and the way things, the, the whole idea of the American dream. Now, there were these dreams, some turned out well, some turned out badly. So, our friend Winston Good question, Elliott. Jason. Thank you for it. Yeah. Yeah, that was a great question, Jason. Uh, our friend Winston Elliott, who's at the Free Enterprise Institute, Imaginative Conservative in Houston, is down the road from you, uh, has also asked a very interesting question about the U.S. exploring expedition from 1838-1842 on the West Coast. Could you speak to that, please? On the West Coast, I'm not sure exactly what is being referred to here. So, Perhaps Winston can write a clarification then or something that'll prompt. Yeah, so, so if you mean an examination of the coast itself, um, it's something I really don't get into. Um, because one of the things that I had to figure out in, in writing this book is what to leave out. And it didn't take me long to realize that a lot more was going to be left out than what was included. I would just say that Thomas Jefferson, even before he decided that Louisiana was something that the United States ought to buy, had placed in motion plans to explore the West, whether it was an American West or not. And so he, on behalf of the American Philosophical Society, had arranged an exploration of basically what would become the Lewis and Clark Expedition long before the Louisiana Purchase. It didn't come off. But one of the themes of my book and also one of the themes of American history was exploration of the West underwritten by the federal government. One of the points I make in the book, and again, I don't make a big deal of it, but I simply point out that the West was where the federal government first got in the business of doing scientific research. Now, we take for granted that the U.S. government does scientific research. It's been underwriting scientific research for decades and decades. Well, it began in the American West with the underwriting of these expeditions of discovery. The Lewis and Clark expedition was called the core of discovery, and it had a scientific purpose. Very good. We've got a couple of more questions and then we're gonna to have to call it off, but uh, here's a really interesting one from our friend Kendall Wingrove over in Lansing. He drives over every time you're here in Grand Rapids to see ah, himself. Uh, in John Ford's classic Western, The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance, uh, the journalist Ransom Stoddard says, quote, when the legend becomes fact, print the legend. So during your research, Kendall wants to know how hard was it to separate the two? Well, for the most part, I would say I was aware of what was the legend and what was the fact. But I sympathize with the sentiment. And I'll refer again to the stories of Joe Meek. Because Joe Meek told stories of life in the Rockies, of battling grizzly bears, basically 
hand to hand. And to sort of quote from another genre, this, these stories fell in the category of what journalists sometimes call too good to check. Now, in my case, there was no way to check. If Joe Meek said that this has happened, I had no reason to conclude that it didn't happen. There's, and Joe Meek was related to another, there's a very famous incident in the history of the West, and it has to do with the region around what would become the Yellowstone Park. And there was a member of the Lewis and Clark expedition named Coulter, John Coulter. And Coulter uh, had been, he left the Lewis and Clark expedition to go hunt and trap in the mountains. And he ran afoul of some Blackfeet Indians. This was a tribe of Indians that never got used to the idea of intrusion by whites. And they were the tribe that the trappers and everybody else knew to steer clear of. But once he was caught, by them when he was out hunting. And he was made to run for his life. And Coulter's run became famous in Western lore because he had to run barefoot across miles of open prairie. And he was his feet were cut with rocks and there was a band of Indians chasing him. And the ones who got him first were able to get his scalp and win the race. And But he was able to outrun them then outwit them. And the only witness to all of this was Coulter himself. And so I, I wrote this in to the book, and I was questioned on it by a reader who sent me an email. Do you think it really happened? And I said, well, I have no reason to think it didn't happen. It might have improved a bit in the telling, but there was probably something at the heart of the story there. I will say, and I'm not sure if this gets me off the hook or not, but when I do tell one of these stories, whether by Joe Meek or Coulter or anybody else, when I include these stories, I make a point of saying in the text that Meek afterwards said that the grizzly did this and so on. So the reader will know that the reader is getting this from Meek. And if you don't believe it, don't blame brands, blame me. And the same thing for Coulter's run. Now, I, I also point out, I mean, this is a question that's been raised. You mentioned Black Elk. Black Elk was a member of the Lakota tribe, and he's, he was an eyewitness to the demise of the, the Sioux. And he was there in the 1860s. He was at the Battle of the Little Bighorn. He was there at the massacre at Wounded Knee. And he lived many years later. And his memoir, it was an as-told-to memoir, was published decades later. And people have raised questions. Did he remember it this way? And the answer is, okay, maybe. But memoirs always fall into that category. When Benjamin Franklin, who wrote the most famous autobiography in American history, says that, in his autobiography, says, there is not a time when I, I cannot remember a time that I did not know how to read. Okay. Really? Did Benjamin Franklin know how to read at the age of three? Or maybe he couldn't remember before he was age of five. But my sort of, it's in terms of the context, in terms of Benjamin Franklin, he was a very literate person, so it's plausible. In terms of Joe Meek and, and John Coulter, yeah, these sort of things were plausible. So I let the reader know what the sources are, and, and the reader doesn't have to go to the footnotes. I'm sorry. I'll let readers know. The reader can judge for himself or herself.
the last question is make a comparison between say the uh, gold rush in 49 48 49 and silicon valley is it still oh there both the spirit of the west oh that was such a great question because it's to the extent to the extent that i think that i have added anything to historical interpretations of this as i say i tend to write books as narratives but within the narrative there are embedded certain ideas one could even call them arguments but i don't take an argumentative tone but i believe that silicon valley emerged in california and not in the american east because of the gold rush experience i pose for listeners now a thought experiment readers of listeners of a certain age will know that in the early in the 1960s the computers were just starting to come out of sort of IBM's big offices and they were getting shrinking down so there could become what would be this tech revolution of the 70s 80s and 90s and if anyone were going to guess or actually make an investment a gamble on where the the center point of this revolution was going to be what's ground zero of this tech revolution going to be there were two candidates two obvious candidates one was the boston area because what did you need for this thing to happen? You needed number one, you needed existing electronics firms. And Fairchild, Semiconductor, and a couple of other businesses had already located in the Boston area. You also needed um, very distinguished research universities. And there are some pretty good universities in Boston, starting with Harvard and MIT. Well, it might also happen in the San Francisco Bay Area because there was Hewlett Packard, and there was Stanford and Berkeley. And so it could have been one or the other. But there was a third element that people didn't realize the importance of in the 1960s and 1970s. And I can speak as somebody who was in the San Francisco Bay Area at that very time in the early 70s, when what would become Silicon Valley was simply called the South Bay or the Santa Clara Valley. I was an undergraduate at Stanford in the early 1970s. And nobody had thought to call it Silicon Valley yet. But the thing that made it happen, the tech revolution happened in Silicon Valley, in, in California, and not in Boston, was that there were these two different models of, of American success, of material success in America. The Boston model I call the Puritan model, or the Benjamin Franklin model. And it's based on the idea that success is the reward of diligence, hard work, of sort of having these moral values that contribute to materialist success. It reflects the, the hangover of the Puritan days, those predestinarians who believe that God saved us or not, and we didn't know, but there might be signs. And if my business succeeded, if my farm thrived, that was a sign that God smiled on me and I would be saved. But what this does is it injects a large moral element into business enterprise, because you're not going to undertake something risky that might fail, because then you'd start to think, oh my God, I'm doomed. I'm going to go to hell. Well, that's the old model. The new model emerges in California. And I pose for my readers and viewers and my students the example of two gold miners in California. And they're standing in a rushing stream. They're panning for gold. And one guy reaches down and pulls up a big gold nugget and says, Eureka, I'm rich. And the guy standing 20 feet away in the next claim over reaches down and picks up a rock. He says, dang, I got a rock. Now, the guy who picks up a rock, does he beat his breast and hang his head and ask himself, what's wrong with my character? No, 
what the, the second guy does is he goes, gets a new claim. What California did was to normalize failure, to was, was to reward risk. The third element in launching Silicon Valley, what would become Silicon Valley, was the willingness to take big risks. It was the basis for the venture capital industry, which is based on the idea that you make 20 bets, knowing that 19 of them are going to go bust, but the 20th will reward you well enough to pay for all the busts and make us rich besides. That didn't happen. There was too much of that Benjamin Franklin Puritan hangover in Boston, but it had been washed away by the gold rush to California, which is why. Silicon Valley emerged in California. It's why the business climate in California is still the most dynamic in the country. Bill, it's always a pleasure. Ah, uh, the pleasure is mine, Gleaves. Well, thank you for sharing your passion for American history and writing and telling us about the West and so much else too. Uh, the people who've tuned in can see now why we have you back to the Hauenstein Center as often as we can. Uh, I think you're gonna be coming next time in April. Thanks also to our viewers whom I invite to zoom in or join in on Facebook at the same time on Thursday, May 7th, when my guest will be Cook Leadership Academy candidate fellow, Ellie Herndon. Ellie has just graduated and she's a dedicated teacher. Ellie will share her leadership journey with us and report from the front lines how some of our most vulnerable students are doing during the pandemic. Till Thursday at 1 p.m., stay tuned and stay well. Beyond Aporia is a podcast brought to you by the Hauenstein Center for Presidential Studies at Grand Valley State University. The director of the Hauenstein Center and producer of this podcast is Gleaves Whitney. The theme music was composed by Andrew Whitney. The Hauenstein Center is inspired by Ralph W. Hauenstein's legacy of leadership and service. Our programs address many of the pressing issues that Americans face. To learn more about the Hauenstein Center, please visit us at www.gvsu.edu slash hc. You can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening. This is Gleaves Whitney.